Welcome to the People's Countryside podcast. Thanks for being with us. We will debate three important environmental issues per episode with a special guest. And we'll be dealing with serious world-scale problems. We approach each question in an open and friendly manner, as though we're sat together in a pub talking with friends. Our ultimate aim is to take this idea on stage in front of a live audience as the people's countryside, live and unscripted. So sit back and listen as the conversation unfolds. And remember, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter where you can share a question you'd like us to discuss and also find out more about our wider work at thepeoplescountryside.co.uk. Welcome to another episode of the People's Countryside podcast with me, Stuart Mavitt. Me, William Mankelow. And our guest, Talia Khan. I'd like to actually ask you, uh, if you're listening to this, where are you actually listening? What are you doing while you listen to this podcast? We've got a follower on Twitter who's um, Anna Dillon, and uh, she's actually a painter in Oxfordshire, and she often says she listens to this podcast while she's painting. So I'm not sure if that's... uh, we, we, we come out in any of their paintings or not, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, are you on, is this on your commute to work? Are you on the train and you're just sort of like shutting yourself out from the people around you because you're focusing on getting to work? Or, yeah, like you said, are you doing painting? That's really fascinating that somebody's painting whilst they're listening to this this podcast. I'd love to know what the painting looks like. I was going to say, it might change the pa- painting, might yeah, 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 yeah. Does it change it? Does it make it more relaxed? Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? Anyway, Talia, your question I've got here is what are the challenges people face who work professionally in the environmental and sustainability sectors? So you work in the sustainability sector. Tell us what you do and what your challenges are. So what I really do in the sustainability sector is to help those people working in that sector to look forward to going to work, to enjoy working, and to not have it plaguing them when they're at home. And for a very short answer to the question, and I've got a lot more answers, but for a very short answer to the question, what I would say is that the main thing is relationships. So just like for anybody else, the main thing that holds people back and prevents them from doing their work well is how they relate to others, um, how they communicate with each other, Mm. how they feel about all of those things, so emotions and relations. We actually have another guest in the studio, it's your cat, William. So if you can hear anything rubbing around the the microphone, what's her name? Uh, Misha, yeah, she's decided today that she's going to be very active and she's normally sleeping at this time of the day, aren't you, Misha? So you hear any brushing sounds, it's the cat. Yeah, it's the the local wildlife in in the flat. People get a bit bleary-eyed and a bit glazed-eyed when they hear another environmental message. How, How do you stop your audience yawning and saying, oh, here we go again. So to be honest, I work behind that, so I don't actually work directly in the environmental sector. I work with the people who work Mm. in the environmental sector. So I'm one step back. Um, So I think one of the main things you've got to do is to make it 
interesting and exciting and you've got to have a positive option for people. So if you go in saying, oh, it, the world's falling apart, mm. uh, we're all going to the dogs, it's just going to be a nightmare, that's not going to get any action happening. But if you start by saying, we've got this plan, we can do this, we can make this renewable energy, we can rewild this area, this is how we're going to do it, and you can make that come alive for people, give them a vision, then that's going to make a massive difference to them. But William, have you found, when you're talking about the environment and stuff, your friends, uh, the arrows are glazing over? No, I'm fine with it. My friends, is that they, they, under, they totally understand it and they totally get it. And before we came on the podcast here, we were talking about flying and uh, a lot of my friends fly and go on their holidays. But they're, they're very much well aware of what the impact that would have on, or have on the environment. And I think they're also very well aware of what the impact they have themselves, generally speaking. What I find, though, is it's more kind of like higher levels, mm-hmm. up, up to governmental level. There could be people within the higher levels that, that I was going to, what I was going to say to you, do you get people that, you must get people that literally just refuse to believe that, that, that we're really having that much impact on the environment? I or have you, not, have you think, not come across that? I don't think that is the case so much anymore. I think head knowledge is quite good in the UK, certainly. Um, I think people believe it's happening, but I, don't, I think people feel completely powerless. And that's why I think mm. this, this vision and helping people to know what they can get behind and actually do, um, rather than just negative stuff like don't mm. fly. Are, are the challenges yeah. you face the same as the people you're working with? I think if you work in the environmental sector all the time, so you're doing this stuff at work and you know how vital it is, um, I think it's more difficult to turn off when you go home because if you're committed to it, then it's your life and it affects what you do at home and you can get kind of almost obsessive about, Mm. oh no, there's a light on or oh, I've just opened another Mm. packet that I'm going to have to throw away or whatever it is. Mm. So I think it can be almost even worse because people don't get the chance to turn, you know, switch off Mm. if you like at work. Mm. Is there a case there though, I mean, talking from my own experience really, when it comes to any sort of sustainability of my own, I mean, I do do a lot of flying because we go to Finland, Finland on a <coughs> yearly basis, really, or maybe and maybe more, more twice or three times. But within our day-to-day lives, we we do the smaller things of not using too much reuse packaging. We we have our own coffee mugs which we take with us to coffee shops. So we we take have a takeaway coffee. We're not using a one-use cup, that sort of thing. It's just maybe not so visible, potentially. I don't know. It, it is. I don't know, it's just uh, very yeah. often I go to these large events and people say, yeah, that was great, we learned a lot, but what difference did it make? But it's always down to, we have to make, we have to... I suppose. I mean, I think what was interesting, I don't know if um, listeners know of the Oxfordshire Green Tech, which just was launched just yesterday. Yeah, I heard about that, yeah. But, um, so, Councillor Tom Hayes was talking there, and he was saying, we have to get the community to hold the local and national... Um, governments to account so we've got to be putting that pressure on it's got to kind of come bottom up so that they do it you know it's Mm. it's it's very easy to kind of say oh well you know it's 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 not about politics it's about action but actually that is Mm. kind of an action and they've got to have that remit from us in order to be able to make it happen Mm. and Mm. I think once things you know legislation makes things happen you know like around buildings 
used to be an idea that we were going to have zero carbon buildings. That's been ditched. Mm. Why is that? Mm. Well, well, they're doing that a lot. We've said this again before, but in Manchester, they've got this big push to be, be one of the first cities to be a carbon sink. And then last time I went into Manchester in the very centre, there was 57 cranes. There's a lot of building work going on. But when you see these buildings going up, there's hardly any solar panels on them. So yeah. I just think it's a missed opportunity all over the place. I was going to say as well, it, it, there is so much difference between each um, council, <clears throat> local authority anyway, isn't there? So each council has its own priorities, has its own budget and that type of thing. But I was listening to Radio 5 just recently and they were just talking about um, about the environment in particular. And somebody had phoned in and asked a question of something some, something simple as moving forward being sustainable is why is it no, not every single new build doesn't have, I don't know, a um, solar panel on the roof as standard? You know, you build build a new build new housing, that, that would be a standard, a standard mm-hmm. installation. Why isn't that happening? And um, there wasn't really an answer to that question. Why, why isn't that happening? Well, I suppose one of the answers is building regulations don't require mm. um, that level. And, and maybe solar panels isn't actually the main thing, although mm. it's a visible thing. It's, mm. it's more around how it's built, the insulation, mm. the water's re- all of those kind of things. Mm. But yeah, I, I, but I, you see, I go back to this, how, how are we getting people involved? And I think, you know, I, I don't know much about other cities, but I know in Oxford there's, you know, the low carbon hub with all mm. the different, mm-hmm. so, you know, low carbon West Oxford, low carbon Oxford North, all of those different. Yeah. That gives people an opportunity to do something specific. Mm. You know, that gives people an opportunity to, to invest in renewable energy, mm. um, to meet with other people who care. So I think it's about community and coming together mm. and, and having something positive rather than something negative. That mm. would be... Okay, the question was um, what challenges people face who work professionally in the environmental and sustainability sectors. Something I'd like to throw in is an awful lot of people who are working in those sectors are actually volunteers, they're not professionals. Okay. Are are volunteers faced with different challenges? I think it's difficult as a volunteer, isn't it? Because um, you may not have the knowledge Mm. that a professional will have. So you could be working away on something which actually isn't going to have a great deal of impact. Mm. Um, mm. You know. So the professionals need to actually have a strategy to guide the vast amount of volunteers out there, you think? Upskilling people and educating people as mm. to, you know, what's the most important thing to do. That's what you do in an emergency, isn't mm. it? You, you pick the most important things. You don't put, mm. pick the, the easiest things, which is what people... Because what I see in, in Oxford, there's a huge amount of small voluntary groups mm. that in some, at some times, in point in time, sometimes they're pulling away from each other because it's sort of like they've got their own internal politics. So mm-hmm. sometimes having yeah, lots of small organisations, it can be counterproductive. So this, this, the, the, but the thinking needs to be universal. I think it always seems to always come back to the individual and what the individual can do and what they feel they can do mm. for the what impact they can have individually themselves. So, you know, we've talked about in past podcasts, you know, that, um, I mean, and as I understand it, the biggest um, producer of CO2 is energy production. So that's something that we, as individuals, can't really change that much, can we? Well, but, no. But what, what I'm thinking is that it seems to always come back to the individual and what the individual can do and what they're perceived by their perceptions of what how what difference they can make whether that's a good negative or a positive 
uh, change. That's mm. so. The, the question asks, um, what are the challenges? Well, when I first read that, I thought, well, my main challenge is is making the message constantly inspiring. That's the challenge, finding it. But actually, when I, as I'm listening to this conversation, it seems to be a joined up thought process is the main challenge is that it underlines it, it all. Is it also making it relevant as well to people's lives? You know, that so it can think, actually make a difference? I mean, I think you're all very much, you're both very much focusing on the outward bit of, of mm. working in environmental. But obviously, a lot of people are doing research, mm. a lot of people are doing the nuts and bolts of working out how we can um, use energy more efficient, mm. uh, efficiently. Um, storage of energy, all sorts of different things that, that people are working on. Um, companies will have a sustainability team very often mm. trying to make that company more sustainable. And so some of the issues that come up for people who are working professionally, they might be a sustainability team in a much large, larger organisation. Mm. Uh, you might be surprised to know of some of the organisations that do have sustainability mm. teams. Most of them will do, even people who might be on your blacklist who mm. you wouldn't buy from or visit. Mm. Um, and for those people, the question is, are they being taken seriously or are they there as greenwash? Yeah. Um, yeah. Are they resourced well enough? Um, mm. Do the people above them, so if the manager of that sustainability team, does their line manager understand them? Mm. Um, do, they, do they speak up for them? Mm. Do they make sure that they get the budget, the resources? And then you've got the other issue of the people within a team. So say you've got a team of working in sustainability, you have... You have kind of real bright green greenies in there, you know, who live, breathe, you know, never never use a coffee cup, you know, kind of thing, those mm. people. Then you've got people who, that, uh, it's their job. Yeah. You know, that's just, they could have been doing something else, but they're good at number crunching, so they're doing mm. energy management. That can be a massive clash. Mm. You know, that because, because they're like, huh, you're having meat for lunch? Mm. Yeah. You know, well, mm. why aren't you vegan? You know, there's that you can have all of those things going on as well, and I think that comes back to, um, you know, taking it seriously mm. um, across the board. So mm. the universal message, but also, the, you know, the um, the hierarchy we're talking about. Then that they, they, they have the the, the workers as greenwash, but the hierarchy is made up of individuals as, as well. You know, yeah. we're all individuals. But something again we were saying before we started recording was. You know, we wanted through these podcasts to bring together the scientists, the business, the decision makers, and the ordinary people. Uh, there, there doesn't seem to be any, anybody outside of those three groups that we're talking about. We all seem to fit into one of those three groups. Artists. Artists, yeah. Like uh, what was her name, Anna, Anna Dillon, who's listening well, to this now. You know, yeah. I think I think they have a a really important role. You know, artists covering every kind of mm. different kind of art. Yeah, in presenting the ideas to other people, getting mm. people to understand, um, and just sharing that and mm. encouraging people, all sorts of mm. things. Um, I think every walk of life, you know, musici musicians, you know. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so that was what are the challenges? People who work professionally in the environmental and sustainability sectors, what are the challenges they face? We have Talia Carr with us on uh, this episode of the People's Countryside podcast and I put out on social media, did any listeners have any questions uh, for our guest? And uh, I had one through, Talia, from Angela Price in Blandford Forum. Do you know her? 
Don't know her. Okay, so Angela's question about sustainability. Sustainability is about time management as well on a personal level. What steps uh, can we all use to recognise when, when we are personally becoming overwhelmed? Okay, um, so I think um, if you're overwhelmed, I think you know you're overwhelmed probably. I think, yeah, um, much, yeah. yeah, it's that feeling of like, oh gosh, what do I do next? Where do I start? I've got so much, I don't know, I don't think this is going to be possible. And it can be a bit like, you know, rabbit in the headlights, really, um, mm. you know, and it can prevent you from doing anything. Um, and really, what you have to do at that point is, obviously, you've got to do something. So what you really need to do is to prioritise. So you've got to look at all of the stuff, get it all out there and think, right, OK, which is the most important thing? Which is the next most important thing? Um, ditch some of the things that are really not very important and decide what you're going to do and then do it. So it's really about prioritising and making a decision. And I think that that really comes into climate change as well. So I think, I think we can get really overwhelmed by everything that we have to do and, and we can get so, so worried about that one use of, of a, a, you know, a, I don't know, a crisp packet or something. Mm that that gets out of all proportion. Or buying a packet of crisps in the first place. Crisp. Yeah, can, I can't buy a packet of crisps because I'm yeah. going to produce one more bit of litter. Right? Exactly, and it feels evil, and you know, and, yeah. and, and then what do you do, and then the, the, there isn't anything to eat. and you, it, I mean, it's just kind of, it can really snowball. Mm. And so I think you have to prioritise and make your decisions and then do something. Mm. Yeah. Okay, well, that's a good answer. Thank you, uh, Angela Price. We don't know who you are, but thanks for listening. And uh, thanks for sending us a message. Okay, so the question, William, uh, the second question is yours, um, which is, with all the evidence that climate change is a result of human activity, what will it take to convince the sceptics that we must act before it's too late? Yeah, this, goes, this touches upon, um, I mean, I watch a fair amount of YouTube. Um, there are people out there that really still deny that the climate change that we're experiencing now is not being at least accelerated by our own activity. Um, what what would need to happen? What sort of what what thing would need to happen for them to sort of believe it? Or do you think there'll always be that thinking that it's not us? It's just it's just a natural cycle of the planet. Do you think? How do you think? Well, it is a natural cycle of the planet, uh, heat and um, in, and drops in in temperature, but. There, there will always be sceptics, but you only need the critical mass of people to, to make a difference. What makes a sceptic, though? Um, uh, is it, is it, isn't it healthy to have a sceptic? Because they question, they challenge. But when the evidence is, over, is, is overwhelming, mm. then how can you be sceptical? We have to look at the hidden motives. Uh, do, do you, in your daily life, do you come across, Talia, um, people who are ingrained sceptics that... Well, obviously, in my daily life, I'm mostly working with the, the professionals yeah. in sustainability, so I don't don't yeah. meet that many of them. But I did look look this up when I heard um, what you were going to be asking, William, and um, it's quite interesting because in places where there has been, um, you know, severe flooding, it hasn't necessarily made a difference to people um, as to to their kind of greater belief and concern um, about climate change. 
what seems to make a much greater decision, uh, d d difference, is your politics, mm. your upbringing, your education, as well as your experiencing of something. But those things are actually more important than um, you know, seeing that there's a wildfire, which mm. which seems un or a you know a deluge or whatever. I was just going to say that there's. You know, people would say, "Oh, it's, we've had the coldest winter on record. What's what's going on with global warming?" But mm. it's all part of the, it's all part of the the climate change, isn't it? That's mm. one part of it. Mm. So it's kind of pointing that out, and it's like, well, that's actually that is that would be part of how the climate is changing, really. Mm. But um, values are hidden in there as well. I mean, our own cultural values. Where where do they come from? Is that upbringing? Is that is that genetics? Is that self-preservation? Where do values come from? So I, I do think there is something around education here. I mean, I don't know if you remember the um, the Al Gore um, an inconvenient truth. Yeah, I've film. got that. Yeah, yeah, I've seen and, it. Yeah. And do you remember that point? So the best bit in that that was for me, where um, there's Al Gore and he's standing there with some scales, and on one side of the scales there's a whole load of money. Mm. And it's as if he's been offered these. He could have all of this money, or he could have this beautiful green world. Mm. And he goes like, "Oh, money! I'll have. Oh, hang on a minute. I only get one. I don't get the world mm. and the money. I get just the one. And obviously, once you've taken the money, <laughs> you can't get any more because mm. the world's gone. You know. Mm. And I, I think it's, I think it's just that click of understanding that 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 really will make a mm. difference and you know it's beginning to happen that people are realizing that being sustainable thinking about the planet there's a that the, there's a financial reason mm. to do that as well so once those things are, are really clear to people i think that makes a massive difference so if you're bringing a child up and you're trying to give it the values of protecting the environment what you're saying is it won't really imbibe that until it's got its own personal experience and con of consequences. You know, I've got these choices, make money, protect the environment. You know, mm. it, it, can you teach the values or is it down to exposing people to the, the reality of the situation and they form their own values? Are values social? So when I worked in Uganda, mm. people were much closer to what was going on because they the vast majority of people are farmers there mm. um, and they see the change happening they see the drought they they aren't able to grow food it's very 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 clear to them once the message comes to them once they understand that it's climate change um, that makes a whole difference in the mm. way they approach things and the, what they're going to ask governments to do and how they're going to respond to that I think um, so I would say to bring that back to a UK con um, context, I think you know children have got too cut off from you know the fact that their food and their shelter. How does it get there? You know, how mm. does their internet get there? What's involved in that? Mm. So I think I think there is a lot about helping young people, children, to understand how they fit into mm. this world. Is it almost that the the risk? Isn't isn't great enough for us right now? We can live relatively easily now, can't we? You know, we can get we have access to food. We we have access to we 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 have decent housing. So it's almost that we become become too um, comfortable 
Well, do you think so? You see, I, I, I'm not so sure that mm. that's, that's, you know, when, when is our big moment going to come? Mm. When we have a drought that's even longer than last summer's drought mm. and we have to import um, even more food and the price of food goes up, mm. it may not hit me, you know, I'm well off in terms of, you know, but it's going to hit some people when mm. that goes up. And when, you know, when fossil fuels, when we have to change our attitude towards those and energy prices go up, that is going to put some people right on the edge, actually, mm. or even over the edge. So I think some people are actually on the edge now and not even aware. But um, but uh, coming back but to the value... awareness, isn't it? So, yeah. so it's being aware of that actually even happening. So mm. this sort of thing, the prices, for example, don't go up overnight. They will, it will be a gradual increase and you, as anything, you don't really realise it on a gradual basis. You will modify your budget. You might maybe not drive as far. You might work in a different location. You might start to um, change what you buy at the supermarket because the prices have gone up. So it's almost that then there's going to, but there will be that moment, won't there? But it might be too late then potentially. That might be too far down the road. Unless what, what Stuart's saying is true, and that's that you know, you, unless we're talking about the people who are on the edge already, and it only takes just a little bit, of course, yeah, mm. to make the difference, of course. Mm. So, we're after the critical mass of, of, of awareness for this, but something I do want to pick up yeah, in the question, William, you said, um, What will it take to convince the skeptics? I don't necessarily know if you have to convince the skeptics, uh, if, if we if you. Uh, if, if they're reduced in number but I do believe there are lessons to be learned from them because they do have an opinion and they do have a different way of thinking of things and sometimes I've found in, in my life when I've met somebody I know is in my opinion is wrong and they're sceptical about something there is still a little nugget in there that you can learn from and maybe take and enhance your perspective so I wouldn't overrule sceptics completely I, I you know, we know some people who have challenged us professionally yeah. uh, and are very sceptical about what we do for, for a living. Um, I think, can you actually make a living from this? But uh, you challenge yourself with that. You challenge your own perspective. So I'd actually pull you up on that. I'd say I wouldn't be too sceptical about the sceptics. So I've got a question. If Does it matter what people believe as long as they are acting correctly? Mm. So if they're making the difference, mm. if they're, whatever their motivation for choosing renewable energy, for whatever their, whatever means that they've decided not to fly, does it matter? Mm. Yeah. So the motive behind the action, the, the, act, the action is more important than the motive. The action is going to make the difference. So then my next question would be, if you've got something really positive for people, so at the moment, I still go back to this, like a lot of the climate change messages is about don't, don't do this, give this up, Tr don't do this, you know. If there was something really positive, if there was, there was something that you could join that wasn't about protesting and being, you know, an activist or whatever, but was actually something really positive that was community-led and enjoyable... Mm. Whether people were joining it because it was community and they were with people, whatever the motivation, mm. if that meant that we were reducing our carbon emissions, wouldn't that be? Mm. I've often said before, uh, people protest against uh, certain things. 
But sometimes you got to sit down and talk to, to, to the people who you would normally protest with, because that's when, like, uh, with Heathrow Airport. I was we just thinking about Heathrow. We Airport, had the opportunity yeah. to work over there, and somebody said, "Oh well." There was definitely skepticism around working alongside uh, an a, big, a big polluter, which is. Which and is uh, but my view is, it's okay to protest, but sometimes you've got to sit around a table with these mm-hmm. people, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, it puts it puts across our point of view to them, and it might might give them a, a point of view that they've never even thought of mm. before. And we really understand their point as well, mm. you know. It's yeah. It's too, well, I don't agree with this, I'm going to go out and protest. There is a, a room for that, but I think it can go too far. I was going to say, there's a, we're getting towards the end of this question now, I feel, mm. um, because and there's always room to be sort of very kind of uh, confrontational about these, mm. these, these questions, or just, just to, just to pull, we, pull each other up on the questions about what we've, what we've brought to the table. Mm. Uh, what I was going to mention at this point as well, that if anybody here right now is listening to this and they have a, their own answers to any of these questions, then uh, you know, feel free to comment. Uh, but we're also looking for questions to moving forward anyway. Mm. So if there's one specific burning question that's in your mind right now. Um, How can people contact us? We, well, the, best, the best way is to go through our website, which is thepeoplespeoplespeoplespeoplespeoplespeoplespeoplespeoplespeoplespeoplespeoplespeoplespeoplespeoplespeoplespeoplespeoplespeoplespeoplespeoplespeoplespeoplespeoplespeoplespeo
there's a group of Indians in on the, in the Peruvian uh, Ecuadorian border called the Atuas, and they're, they're 50 years ago. Uh, they didn't know about the outside world, and they were still cannibals, you know, and they they still live a very simple life. But uh, their existence is threatened because they're living over the top of a load of oil. So they want to, the government wants to cut the forest down and destroy the culture and get the oil. Now, they're, 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 we perceive that they're connected more to their environment uh, than we are, but that's the situation they found themselves in. They're isolated. They have to do that to survive. And they're, what they're actually doing is fighting for their survival. But then I looked at... Um, uh, the, the Palestinians in Gaza and there's probably very little wildlife on the Gaza Strip you know with the odd tree maybe if you're lucky um, and uh, there's no environment you know there's no what we would say no na very little nature there but they're still fighting for their survival but does it mean either either of those are any more connected to their environment than we are or is it just the necessity? Is it just the system they found themselves in? That's I don't know if there's an answer to this. I was going to, that's got to be the longest question we've had so far on this podcast. <laughs> so I suppose my question would be, is what do you mean by connected? Because what, when we were talking, um, answering William's question, um, we, we touched on this a little bit, didn't we? Because mm. I think everybody actually is connected we we do just live in this one world yeah. we don't mm. have nobody is getting their food from another planet mm. um, nobody's getting anything you know their mm. clothes anything so it's just it's more when you say connection is it kind of a recognition rather than yeah it's recognition um of uh our, our, how sustainable is our is our culture mm. you know i mean because uh is any culture truly connected to its environment or is perceived sustainability rooted in necessity? So, yeah, I mean, I, I'm looking at the connection to uh, the sustainability, of the or unsustainability of the systems. I mean, are we divorced from the consequences in the, in the Western world? Are, are those Atuas in the jungle, are, are they just surviving out of necessity or are they are actually aware that this they are being sustainable do they know what sustainability is yeah are they even aware of that concept and are they just like you say surviving and it, it you have to i think you'd have to ask them really mm. but then do they you only come from your own point of view right but we have a friend of ours gil hilliard he went to spend time with, with in with the actuars and he actually asked them what did you, they feel they could learn from us and the answer was almost nothing because mm. even though those 50 years ago they were completely isolated they are aware of what goes on in the rest of the world now and they said maybe a little bit of understanding of technology a little bit but they the the, the indians felt there was very little they could learn from us and it was the, they had an interesting perception about the western world in particular didn't they they thought we were mad they thought we were, thought we were mad the way we live um, yeah. and maybe Maybe that's what we need to, to learn from that, Go back to going back to basics mm. in a way. It's interesting what you say that all cultures are connected mm. to the environment because we're here. But um, the, the sustainability, if we sep separate that out, is there a way of being sustainable that uh, is a halfway house between our Western world and these cultures? 
I mean, or I'm not saying uh, in the West we should start, you know, living in trees again, you know, and live, you know, but there are better ways of living. But um, is it uh, <coughs> is sustainability? What drives that? What drives out of the desire to be sustainable? Do you think on a on a human level, regardless of our culture? Is that drive even then innately there? Is it something that we actually have to actively, actively seek? Because mm-hmm. I think maybe we can be guilty of being very sort of inward looking and, you know, mm. well, I'm okay, that person over there, I, I can't help them because I, I need to look after myself. So I was very encouraged a while back because, um, and, and I'm, I, I don't know where the evidence of this is, and maybe somebody can, can mm. contact us and, and tell us, but I understood at the time that all we needed to do was either live like they live in Portugal, um, which is not quite at the kind of level of overdevelopment that we mm. have here, but not quite at the level of underdevelopment that might have in some other, um, you know, sub-Saharan mm. Africa maybe. Or another way of putting it was to say we needed to go back and live like we lived in the early 70s. Well, I was alive in the early 70s. And I wasn't suffering at all, as far as I I, mm. I knew, um, and that was the UK in the early seventies. So maybe the change that we have to make isn't so as as out of our mm. you know un, un, difficult to imagine as we mm. think. Mm. Do, do you think the popul- Do you think as the world population is increasing quite ex- exponentially? Do you think that? that is going to be one of the major problems when it comes to sustainability that there's going to be it's going to have too many mouths to feed and that and that then drives how we we, we obviously grow our food and we produce our food and, and that drives on climate change because we're cutting trees down because we want more places to plant yeah, it's, yeah. it can do but the big thing about um the big thing about um people having lots of children is education makes the difference mm. and educating women makes the difference mm. so that's okay. one of the big things and actually do you know what I was thinking when we were talking earlier that it, we can get really too focused in on carbon emissions and I think that the whole seeing the whole thing with the sustainable development yeah. goals and thinking about all of them together um, is, is mm. more what we need to be thinking about so we need to be thinking about happiness, we need to be thinking about water, we need to mm. be thinking about um, women's education, all of those things together, because that's that's really what's going to make the difference, not just focusing on the one thing. It's a balance between everything, right? Rather Absolutely. than just being like focusing on, because you can focus on your carbon footprint and get filled, and we're going back to the whole thing about over being overwhelmed yeah. by it, yeah. you know, I think about my own carbon footprint, and I do fly quite a bit during the year, maybe not to the extent of some people who do business trips maybe three or four times a week, but I'm... I'm I'm very much aware of it, but I feel I still have to do it. You know, there's, there's, a, there's, a, I need to go there because it's family, basically. Mm-hmm. I think there are, you know, Thalia, Talia. So I keep calling you Thalia. Talia said, uh, challenged me earlier when uh, I said uh, we wanted to travel to uh, get understand the perspectives of these isolated cultures and learn from them and bring it back and make it relevant to our work. You challenged us, saying, well. There must be a massive carbon footprint. And the, I actually, I've only ever flown twice uh, because of my, you know, I don't, don't, don't like it, don't like the, the pollution. And, um, and I, I, that was something I did wrestle with. Um, and I came, and it sort of comes down on what William said. The, the benefits of, of travel uh, can outweigh the carbon footprint 
if you put those benefits to good use. Now, um, so negating your carbon footprint isn't necessarily on a, on a physical level where you actually say, well, okay, I've put this amount of carbon in, I need to take this out. You can actually inspire other people to make big changes through using a chunk of carbon if you use it properly. So, I, 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 yeah, I'm interested, I'm fascinated you challenged me with that, but that was, uh, there's an organisation called Pachamama, and that they, they run these, um, these uh, journeys, they call them, to spend time with these cultures. And on top of their website, it actually says a big argument about when they set up their business, they were very aware of the carbon footprint, but the impact they make on the societal level makes them sleep better, I think. But Absolutely. And, I, you know, I, I've, I've flown plenty yeah. in my life, um, so I, I'm, not, I'm not pointing the finger. I, no, just, no, think, no. I just think that we, we will always have justifications for the different things yeah. that we do. Um, Mm. And and uh, you know offsetting exists too, mm. and there are other ways mm. of, of you know. I was also going to say maybe maybe something to think about and as a, as a, as a habit change is that um, maybe trying to slow down your travel as well. Is if it's not essential for you to get somewhere as quickly as possible, which is fly, which flying enables you to do, mm. maybe slow that travel down. <clears throat> when we went down to Tanzania and Kenya, we might be find it hard to get there by public transport, but. I'm sure there would be Quite a way. Or a yak or I've been to Morocco by train. You can go yeah. by Morocco. I know you can go to Morocco by yeah. train, of course. Yeah. You can travel right across down to the bottom of Spain and across yeah. the, uh, yeah. the Straits of Gibraltar, can't you? Um, but I wonder if there's a way you can get a bit further down into Africa. Absolutely. Yeah. And maybe, or maybe even just have a flight between Morocco and uh, Kenya, for example. So you, you're, you're, it's even shortened, your journey in the plane's even shortened. So. Yeah, exactly. We've always assumed that we would fly to these places, we don't yeah. have to. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, we, my, I, I do quite a bit of travel to near Europe, and near Europe is always, it's never flying, uh, unless it's a day trip, but it, it, it's, it's on the train or it's on it's on the ferry, which is obviously a little bit more sustainable going forward. Well, I have to say that was another fascinating conversation. You never quite know where the individual questions are going to take you. Yes. You know, well, and well, often they're nothing to do, where it takes you is nothing to do with the actual question. And quite often it will raise... Uh, more questions it will also challenge us each individually I felt like I've been the most challenged out of the three of oh. us today <laughs> sorry and that's just natural because I think also the, in this particular episode that the, the two the two questions that you that Talia and Stuart brought today um, I was quite quiet in quite a bit of this because I felt that you were the more of the experts when I was just listening I would say I'm an expert I've more got an opinion but I'm not an expert <laughs> you know I have an opinion and I'm not scared of expressing it well, I've really enjoyed enjoyed doing this. I yeah. wasn't quite sure what to expect, yeah. but um, yeah. Expect the unexpected because yes. we have we had problems with the technology as well today. Yeah, that was the it was it was our first challenge of technology, but also um, the local wildlife was was, <laughs> yeah. was causing a problem. Yeah, we had a cat at the beginning uh, causing a little bit of interference. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, she's sat now in locked in the other room. Yeah, so if you heard her hissing during the show, don't worry about it. Anyway, uh, we want uh, you to help us with the uh, future content of this um, this podcast and its development and creation. If there is a question, environmental question, challenge, sustainability question you want us to, to focus on with a future guest, ask us. Uh, you can email us at thepeoplescountryside at gmail.com. I was also going to suggest as well, and I haven't run this past Stuart yet, so I'm going to put it out there. If you yourself would like to be a guest on this podcast, also get in touch with us. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. 
Yeah. And as William said earlier, we've got Facebook, we've got Twitter, and uh, earlier this week, I think Monday, we in, we we're now, officially, we're now officially on Instagram. We're now we're now down with the kids, right? Yeah, right? I know with with the youngsters. No, we're not going to go any further than that. No, it's, uh, we're too old. Anyway, thank you, Talia, for coming in. Thank, thank you. you so much for having me. And uh, we will actually uh, be doing another podcast in a couple of weeks, so join us then. Thank you very much.